0: us today good morning the pulpit is much too high for somewhat of my stature but uh, I, uh, I, I I will persevere through at our church in Illinois we actually had two pulpits the other pastor uh, uh, that preached primarily was t- much taller And we had this tall one, and I I felt like it came to my neck. And uh, anyways, so there was a smaller one, and I would always swap it out when I spoke. But uh, anyways, it it is an honor to be able to break to you the Word of God today. Um, This is a sermon that I preached prior. It was part of a series that I preached in our church on the topic of the Trinity. And you might say, why would you preach on a topic of that lofty nature well I felt it needed to be taught and it was something where people have misunderstandings and it was an area where people were at times uh, I'll say ignorant or, or led into error and as a result I uh, took upon myself the effort to study it to put it into what I felt was a preachable topic and format, and I delivered, I think, total of around five sermons on this topic. This was the last of them, but it was the one that today I felt the Lord would have me bring to you. We're going to look at a couple of different passages, primarily Mark 8, 27 to 30, and then we'll also be in John 8, as this is more topical in nature as opposed to a, a pure expositional sermon on one, uh, one verse or a set of verses. If you would stand as I read out loud, Mark eight twenty seven to 30, and I do appreciate that. Now Jesus and his disciples went out to the towns of Caesarea Philippi, and on the road he asked his disciples, saying to them, who do men say that I am? So they answered, John the Baptist, but some say Elijah and, and others one of the prophets, and he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered and said to him, you are the Christ. Then he strictly warned them that they should tell no one about him. Lord, we ask that you might indeed enlighten us today by your spirit. Help us, Lord, to understand these great truths. May we see Christ, may we see him in his fullness And may we love him, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. There's a parallel account to this in Matthew 16, verses 13 through 16. And they responded there that some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. One of the lesser-known hymns of John Newton is a hymn titled, What Think Ye of Christ? And for your benefit, I won't sing it, uh, but I will read the words from the first stanza. It goes off, What think ye of Christ is the test to try both your state and your scheme. You cannot be right in the rest unless you think rightly of him. As Jesus appears in your view, As he is beloved or not, so God is disposed to you, and mercy or wrath is your lot. That question that Jesus asks, who do people say that I am? We could ask the question in our day, who is Christ to you? Newton goes on in his hymn and gives a number of views that people held in his day. And it's ironic that we've not changed much from Newton's day when you will hear the rest of those stanzas. But have you ever wondered why Jesus asked this question? Who do people say that I am? I mean, didn't Jesus know all things? Didn't Jesus know what people were saying? And the answer would be yes, but he asks a question to prepare them for teaching that is to follow. You see, in verse 27, he says once again, who do men say that I am? But then verse 29, he draws that contrast. But who do you say that I am? And we have, of course, Peter's response, you are the Christ. In Matthew's account, we also have the words (coughs) of Jesus back. He says, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood, (coughs) excuse me, has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And Jesus goes on in this passage to teach that he is the Messiah and he is to be humbled And he is to be exalted for the sake of his people. And in Mark 8.31, And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Then to Mark 10.45, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And then back to Mark 8, 38. For whosoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him, the Son of Man will also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And so this question, who do you say that I am, is preparing them to understand not just who he is in his person, but what he is also going to be accomplishing because of his person. You see, the response that Peter gave went against the popular opinion of the day. There were those who thought he was a prophet. There were those who thought he was just a good man. And there were those who thought that he was perhaps one of these, uh, in this case of John the Baptist, someone brought back. But we already know what had happened to John. Scripture told us what had happened to John. And it, it's ironic in uh, Mark 6.14. Now when King Herod heard of him, his, for his name had become well known, and he said, John the Baptist is risen from the dead, and therefore these powers are at work in him. And so there were many people who gave semi-informed responses with who Jesus is and who Jesus was in that time. In Luke 9.7, now Herod the Tetrarch heard all that was done by him. He was perplexed because it was said by some that John had risen from the dead. Others said, Elijah. Now this came about because of the promise that Elijah must come. In Malachi 3, one, that passage says, Behold, I send my messenger, he will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. And then Malachi 4:5, behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. What they failed to recognize is that Elijah had come, but it wasn't, of course, Elijah. It was John the Baptist in Matthew 11:7 through 10. And they departed. As they departed, Jesus began to say to the multitudes concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? But what did you go out to see? A man clothed in soft garments? Indeed, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I say to you, and more than a prophet, for this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. And so John was that fulfillment of that promise in Malachi that there would come a predecessor, and that predecessor was John. And the speculation around Jesus' identity suggested that some just considered him to be a prophet. That is, an agent of God's power, but not the Messiah. Mark 6:14 through 15. Now King Herod heard of him, for his name had become well known. I read that before. Uh, And it says, others say it's Elijah, and others said it is the prophet or like one of the prophets. In Mark 6, verses 14 through 15. Mark 9:11. And they answered, asked him, saying, Why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? So there's all this confusion. There's all this confusion with who Jesus is. And in Mark 8, Jesus is making it crystal clear to his disciples who he is. Newton, in his hymn, the second stanza, said, some take him a creature to be. A man or an angel at most, but they have not feelings like me, nor know know themselves wretched and lost. So guilty, so helpless am I, I durst not confide in his blood, nor on his protection rely, unless I were sure he is God who do you say that i am you see jesus dismisses what the people say but acknowledges and retains that truth to just those 12 and the question comes back what made christ different what is it that made christ different And that answer is, he is God incarnate. He is God incarnate. Newton captured it in that last statement of that second stanza. Nor on his protection rely unless I were sure he is God. You see, we... Law often used this concept in these terms of mediator. What was a mediator? A mediator was someone that could represent both sides. Okay? He had to represent both parties. So understand this concept of a mediator. Who could represent God but God? And who could represent man but man? And so we use this statement. We call him the God hyphen man. You get technical. It's the hypostatic union. Very, very technical term. But it basically means it is not a mixture of God and man. It is not a partial God and man. It is a complete God and complete man. And you say, I struggle to understand that. That's okay. I struggle to understand that too. I went to college for a lot of years, and it didn't help. I still struggle to understand it. But the reality is the truth needs to be upheld no matter if my finite brain can wrap its head around the Depths of that truth. I received this information from a friend who recently defended this topic. Back in 2016, a LifeWay research poll found that 16% of self-professed evangelicals believed that Jesus was created. 16%. Another 11% were unsure whether Jesus is eternal. Another 22% believed that God the Father is more God than Jesus. While 96% of those polled affirmed the doctrine of the Trinity, 51% denied that the Holy Spirit is a person. It was for those reasons that even before I knew these statistics, I taught on the doctrine of the Trinity and our church. And let me tell you what people think. The father's the head honcho, the son's kind of a lesser lieutenant, and the Holy Spirit's like a force or an influence. That's what people think. That's what most people think. They do not think of each person of the Trinity being fully God, not a diluted version of God, fully God. And when we went through this series, I ended up with four truths of the Trinity. God is one. It's not three gods. It was one God. God is in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, all three persons are equal. That equality of the Trinity is absolutely necessary. And then a fourth one, which actually came a little bit into the series, was not all three persons are the same. And so my first sermon was literally around that, those topics. My second sermon was on the errors and it was ironic because I didn't prepare both sermons ahead. I just prepared the first one. Then I went to go for the second one on the errors of the Trinity. And I found that every error around the Trinity denied one of those four truths. And so we did a study of church history all through time seeing these various errors of the Trinity. And then again, the that third one, I believe, was around the concept of these the, the differences. And so... You know, when we pray, Jesus said, how, how is it we are to pray? He says, our Father, right? So, we pray to the Father, right? We understand that. How do we pray? Well, we pray through the Son. He is our mediator, right? He is the one who gives us the very right to come before Him. But how are we also praying? By aid of the Holy Spirit. All three persons of the Trinity involved in our very aspect of praying. When we come to the topic of salvation, uh, there was a book we used to use in our church, and they they put it as uh, the Father thought the plan, the Son bought the plan, and the Spirit wrought the plan. Now the third one "wrought" kind of a it it, it rhymes well, but uh, it's a little bit more of a, a distant term for us. But the Father, in Scripture, we see that the Father seemed to. Be more of that. um, Here, here was this. Here was what the well, what what we are going to be doing as a as a Trinity, as a as a person, persons of the Godhead, and that the Son seems to be more of the the one who was the acting, and the Spirit more of the one, the empowering, and 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 we can't let that degenerate. Where again, where we put the Father at a pedestal above the Son and the Spirit. They're all equal. I, I had this chart that I, I would do when I would ta- teach on this topic, and, and it was all three persons, and they're all God, and yet they're all equal, and all these arrows going back and forth in there to try to help us picture it, because it's, it's, it's difficult to picture in a way. But the significance of this discourse is absolutely imperative. You see, Peter's statement that he is the Christ is a statement pregnant with thought that goes beyond just words. What does it mean to be the Christ? What does it mean to be the Christ? Peter says that Jesus is the fulfillment of all the prophecies In all the promises in the Old Testament affirming the coming Messiah. The Hebrew word is Mashiach, or we know it as Messiah. And when they created the Greek translation of the Old Testament for Messiah, they used the word Christos, where we get our word Christ. And so, in that day, everybody knew, when you said, you are the Christ, they knew that he was saying, you are the Messiah. You are the fulfillment of every promise, of everything that we had been waiting for and looking for. Christ or Messiah means anointed one or chosen one. And the Old Testament predicted that God would send a chosen one to save the world from sin. Genesis 3.15. It started in the Garden of Eden. There was this promise. There would come one from the seed of woman who would crush Satan's head. And then it goes on to the Noahicum covenant, or to Noah, where in Genesis 6-8, through 8, God preserves the seed of, in the ark, and then the seed will come from Shem's line. And then we have the Abrahamic covenant. And we see from this Abrahamic covenant, this promise that from your seed, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And then we see that in Galatians 3.16, now to Abraham and his seed, where the promises is made, he does not say, and to seeds as of many, but as of one into your seed who is Christ. And finally, we have that statement that the seed would come from David's line and would sit on the throne forever. They knew the seed was coming. They knew there was a promise that was yet to be fulfilled. Here, Peter's response Matthew's account once again says, look, this was not something, Peter, that you figured out because you were just smarter than the other guys. He says, the Spirit of God revealed that to you. And so, as we get into this topic about this promise of Christ and the Messiah, and who that Messiah is, I would sum it all up into the statement of, the eternality of the Son. The eternality of the Son. This topic is a battleground. Uh, Jehovah's Witnesses, others would say, Jesus was created by the Father and has therefore not always existed, nor is he equal. And to me, this is a very, very personal thing. My mother has become a Jehovah's Witness. And though hours of laboring with her in the Word, she does not believe that Jesus is who He says He is through our Word. And she has now recently, in the last year or two, been baptized into their church. And uh, when I preached this series in our church, I preached it, frankly, after. Spending significant amount of time with my mother, trying to help her see the error, and she would not. And I came back to our church and I said, "If you ever go off into this error, it will be against the teaching that you have heard and the preaching that you have heard." And so I undertook a series on the topic of the Trinity. Because I wanted the people that had sat under my ministry to understand this topic and to not be open to error and to be led astray by the heresy of Arius. And we will get there in this sermon. You see, the New Testament approaches this topic. We would use the word for it, Christology, by calling significance to the Incarnation. But the incarnation was not the beginning of Jesus. It was where he took upon himself human flesh. Within the New Testament, Christology is clear that he existed prior. And John's gospel has the clearest statement to this effect. And we will be spending the rest of the time in John's gospel. Turn to John 1. John 1. I spent hours with my mother... Going through John 1. When I got done, I thought, yeah, we got it all understood. She's, she, she's set now. And we went away, and next day, it was no understanding whatsoever. But John 1, verses 1 and 2. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Later in John 17 and verse 5, we have another equally clear statement. And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. So, prior to creation, per John 17:5. But in John 1, the words in the beginning, what does that make you think of? Genesis, right? Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning. And that's exactly the intention that John wanted. He wanted us to go back to Genesis 1.1. 1, 1. He wanted us to understand that in the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, that the agent of creation was the Word. It was Jesus himself. And this passage tells us how the son of God, the second person of the Trinity, was sent into the world to become the Jesus of history so that the glory and grace of God might be uniquely and perfectly disclosed. Jesus said the words, if you have seen the father when you have seen me, what is Jesus saying? That I and the Father are one. I and the Father are equal. I and the Father. If you've seen the Son, you have seen the Father, is what he said. From the statements we have elsewhere in Scripture, sometimes, and uh, Bob has been covering this somewhat in Sunday school, we, we have these angel of the Lord statements. I, I had a wonderful teacher who uh, in... Um, seminary would make, make the comment about the fact that the angel of the Lord, the, the angel who is the Lord in most of those instances. And so in in some translations, the New King James tends to do it, capitalizes that A for angel, and the word angel just means messenger, okay? So we can't think that angel only means like a, you know, a cherubim, a seraphim, or whatever, an archangel. It's, it's a, a it's a messenger. And so that angel of the Lord sometimes, again, if you lose the New King James, it has that capital A. It makes it a little bit easier for us to find that. Psalm 110. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand, my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord shall send the rod of your strength out of Zion. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people should be volunteers in the day of your power in the beauties of holiness from the womb of the morning, you have the dew of your, of your youth. The Lord has sworn and will not relent, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. In Exodus chapter 3, and verse 14, we have this statement, And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. In your verse, look at John 8.58. Turn your Bible to John 8.58. Most of the rest of the time, stay in John 8. because I go back to it again and again and again. John 8.58. Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Do you think that what Jesus was referring to were the very words in Exodus 3.14 to understand that he is that same person? And the answer would be yes. Realize that the Jews... In that, ver- in that chapter, the Jews understand what Jesus was saying. You look at their response. They said, he is blasphemous. And there are those today who discount who Jesus is. And let me say to you, it's blasphemous. To discount who Jesus is, it is blasphemous. Now, there are two types of blasphemous. There are those who do it in ignorance, and there are those who do it willfully. The one who is ignorant has the opportunity. If I could tell you, if I had a list of all the things that I had once believed and that I no longer believed, it'd be a pretty long list. We grow. We we understand. We we gain understanding. And that's good. But to hold willfully to something that scripture tells you is error and yet hold it anyways is blasphemous. In John 118 It says, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of His Father, He has declared Him. Once again, about John 8.58, where He says, before Abraham was, I am. John Calvin, this is a short quote. By these words, He excludes Himself from the ordinary rank of human beings and claimed for himself a power more than human, a power heavenly and divine, the perception of which reached from the beginning of the world through all ages. So the first thing we need to understand is that Jesus has always existed as the second person of the Trinity. Number two, it's the equality and the deity of the Son. In Jehovah's Witnesses' own writings, they do not believe the Father and Son to be equal. They say, however, we take Jesus at his word when he said, the Father is greater than I am. They're referring to John fourteen twenty-eight. So we do not worship Jesus as we do not believe he is almighty God. That is from their own writings. So if you will allow a brief side step, call it a short rabbit trail, on to John fourteen twenty eight. I want us to look at that. Because you are going to have conversations with people who are going to say, perhaps Jehovah's Witnesses, Jesus says the Father's greater than I. You don't believe that. You don't really believe the Word of God. So let's understand what it means. John fourteen twenty eight. See, this passage is used by those who who follow the error of Arius. And D.A. Carson, in his commentary on John, makes the following statement. This is a little bit lengthy. Hang with it. I'll be as brief as I can with it. The problem is how to put together the strand of John and the New Testament witnesses that places Jesus on a level with God, with the strand that emphatically insist upon Jesus' obedience to his Father and on his dependence upon his Father, not to mention John's description of the origin and purpose of the Son's mediation and creation, revelation and redemption as being in the Father's will. Then he says, It cannot be right to to depreciate the truth of one strand by appeal to another. Arians, that's Jehovah's Witnesses, by the way, they, they like to think that they were kind of like, they were unique, they, they found this great truth. It's just the error of Her- of Arius from back to the third century, and they just, you know, re- rebirthed it and given it life once again, or a new name. <clears throat> Arians deploy the latter strand to deny the former, Jesus is less than fully God. He goes on, In each passage, the immediate context resolves most of the difficulties with that strand that emphatically insist upon Jesus' obedience to his Father and upon his dependence upon his Father, not to mention John's description of the origin and purpose of the Son's mediation and creation revelation, and redemption as being in the Father's will. What Carson is saying, in essence, is we cannot exchange the simplicity of error for the complexity of truth. I want to repeat that. We cannot exchange the simplicity of error for the complexity of truth. Again, my own mother succumbed to this. She could not understand how Jesus could be born if he existed before. In her mind, he's a son. Therefore, he's born by the Father. And in her mind, that's how she's understanding these topics. What is the problem? The problem is that Scripture says in tremendous numbers of instances... He is far more than that. But for her to try to embrace that truth causes her to feel confusion. And therefore, she trades the confusion for error because the error is easier to understand. There are truths in Scripture that you and I will struggle to understand. We will struggle to understand man's response and yet God's election. We will struggle to understand, as I mentioned earlier, the hypostatic union. 100 plus 100 does not fit for me in one person, but it doesn't matter. It's true. And therefore, what I cannot exchange Is error because it's simple, for truth, though it's complex. Do not trade your soul for simplicity. Do not trade your soul for simplicity. You might ask why I would say that, but we'll come to that a bit later. Carson goes on to explain about this passage. In the clause before us, the Father is greater than I, cannot be taken to mean that Jesus is not God or that he is a lesser God. The historical context of Jewish monotheism forbids the latter, and the immediate literary context renders the former irrelevant. He says the context of this passage is Jesus is going to return to the Father by means of death and the cross. That's what John 14 is dealing with. I'm going to return to the Father by the cross in death. Connecting the statement, For the Father is greater than I, with this thought says, If Jesus' disciples truly loved him, they would be glad that he is returning to his Father, for he is returning to the sphere where he belongs, to the glory he had with the Father before the world began, to the place where the Father is undiminished in glory, unquestionably greater than the Son in his incarnate state. How would we bubble that up? Right now, the Father's in a place greater. He's on the throne of heaven. Jesus says, I'm going to return there, and where the Father is right now is greater than, Than where I am right now. Right now I'm here upon earth. I'm going to go through the cross. I'm going to go through the, the suffering. It's greater when I will be ascended to the throne with the Father. This is not a statement of equality versus inequality. Jesus said, I and the Father are one. John Calvin says, When Jesus says the Father is greater, he does not here make a comparison between the divinity of the Father in his own, nor between his own human nature and the divine essence of the Father, but rather between his present state and the heavenly glory to which he would soon afterwards be received. So there you go. When the Jehovah's Witness comes to your door and says about John 14, Jesus says in verse 28 that the Father is greater than I. You you now have your answer. You now have been prepared to respond back. But don't just stop there. Take them to John 10 and verse 30. I and my Father are one. That, That statement of oneness is both we are equal in essence. We are equal in person. We are equal in every way that you and I can imagine. The context of John 14, 28 is the disciples' hearts are uneasy because of Jesus' impending departure. And Jesus is saying, look, I am going to the place where my departure for you is going to be one that will actually be for your benefit. For when I have ascended on high, what is also going to happen I will send my comforter in my place. John five seventeen through 19. But Jesus answered them, My father has been working until now, and I have been working. Therefore the Jews sought all the more to kill him, because he not only broke the Sabbath, but also said that God was his father, making himself equal with God. Then Jesus answered and said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself but what he sees the Father do. For whatever he does, the Son also does in like manner. Philippians 2, 5-7, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant coming in the likeness of men. John 1, verses 1-2, we've already read. John 5:17 through 18 but Jesus answered them my father has been working until now and I have been working therefore the Jews sought all the more to kill him because he not only broke the sabbath but also said that god was his father making himself equal with god John 5:22 and 23 for the father judges no one but has committed all judgment to the son that all should honor the Son just as they honor the Father who does not honor the Son does, does not honor the Father who sent him. John 14, 8-11, Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, it is sufficient for us. And Jesus said, Have I been with you so long, and yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father, so how can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe I am in the Father, and the Father in me? In the words that I speak to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does the works. Believe me, I am in the Father, and the Father in me, or else believe me for the sake of the works themselves. We already read John seventeen five. another one. John 10, verse 30. John 14, 1, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. Colossians 2, 9, for in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. The weight of scripture on the equality of the Father and the Son as the equal persons of the Godhead is overwhelming. But again, in John 1, verses 1 through 3, Perhaps we have that greatest statement that he made because he says that he is in the beginning and he is the agent of creation and that all things were made through him and without him nothing was made that was made. Verse 14 in John 1, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. We looked at John 8.58 earlier. Jesus said to them, most assuredly I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. A.T. Robertson notes that using the words I am, Jesus claims eternal existence with the absolute phrase used of God. In the early church, they had these struggles. They, started, they had a creed starting off called the Apostles' Creed. It's a short statement of truth overall. But people began to drift into air. And as a result, came a creed called the Nicene Creed. See, the early church battled error, just as our day has to battle error. And so the Nicene Creed starts with the words, we believe. And it makes statements like this. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and all things visible and invisible, and in one God, Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of the same essence as the Father, through whom all things were made for us and for our salvation. He came down from heaven. He became incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and was made human. He was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate He suffered and was buried. The third day he rose again, according to the scriptures. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again with glory to judge the living and the dead. His kingdom will never end. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life. He proceeds from the Father and the Son. With the Father and the Son is worshipped and glorified. He spoke through the prophets. Then it goes on. We believe in one holy, in that word Catholic, small C, important, and Apostolic Church, also small A by the way. Uh, we affirm one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look forward to the resurrection of the dead and to life in the world to come. Amen. And there is tremendous amount of language given to the second person of the Godhead because of the errors that were existing in their era and their time well time goes along once again there's a need for further clarification it became known as the athanasian creed and the athanasian creed is attributed to athanasius most believe he did not actually write it but is attributed to him because of his teaching and so in his time There were two lines of thought. There were two different perspectives on the Trinity. There was Arius who taught that the Son was created by the Father and that the Holy Spirit was not God but more of an influence. And there was Athanasius who taught there were three persons of the Godhead who were one, and they were all equal. And so this culminated in first that statement of the Nicene Creed, but then later on, this Athanasian Creed. And in the Athanasian Creed, there are these words, whosoever wishes. And so it starts off, whosoever wishes to be saved, must above all keep the, and it uses the word small c, Catholic, meaning universal faith, and therefore it set forth a summary version of the doctrines that are necessary for salvation. And the content of the Athanasian Creed stresses the affirmation of the Trinity in which all members of the Godhead are considered uncreated and co-eternal and of the same substance. So why does this matter? Why do you think this is something that matters in reference to salvation? I go back to that stanza that I noted from Newton. I durst not confide in him unless I were sure he is God. The understanding of who Christ is is absolutely paramount for this reason. A Jesus of your imagination cannot save you. A Jesus that you have created by your own concepts of thinking cannot save you. the jesus of scripture the jesus who was promised from genesis 3:15 forward the jesus who came lived a perfect life who died in atoning death who rose from the dead who ascended on high he is the only jesus who can save you? There is not another. 1 Corinthians 2 14. I usually use the New King James, but I'm going to quote from the Christian Standard Bible. But the person without the Spirit does not receive what comes from God's Spirit because it is foolishness to him. He is not able to understand it since. It is evaluated spiritually. What is that saying? When you are confronted by Scripture and you find that you've perhaps believed something that was error, what's your response? Scripture. That's my right answer. And you then come underneath Scripture's authority. And you change your mind and thinking with how you thought prior to conform to scripture. And so I have these questions. Can a person be saved who does not recognize the equal deity and eternality of Christ? And so the question comes down to this thing. What is the content of saving faith? When I was saved, did I understand those truths and fullness? No, absolutely not. But what happened? You see, I already had the Spirit of God in me. And the Spirit of God was enlightening me along. And as I read the word, there was a witness from the Spirit and it said, Oh, this is truth. Believe this. Oh, and I embraced it. So the questions are, do you believe Jesus died for your sins? Absolutely do you believe Jesus has the power to save you from your sins? Absolutely. Do you identify with Christ as your Redeemer? We, we cannot all be theologians to be saved. So then it goes on. What about the person who denies the equal deity in eternality of Christ? So the person that perhaps had believed something in error, and then they came to Scripture and the truth was placed before them, and they recognized, oh, I've not given Christ all that He is. I've not recognized the full extent of all He is. In my own mind, I repent of that error, and I embrace the Jesus revealed to me in Scripture. That person absolutely shows full witness and testimony of being a believer, embracing Christ, trusting him, even if they have not fully understood prior all that he was. But when it comes to the topic of the person who denies that Jesus is equal God, that he is equal in his very essence and his person, I have far less charity, and I say that with a very heavy heart, for my own mother, and I continue to pray for her. When I finally came to the recognition of why my mother believed what she believed, it was a simple answer. My mom just needs to be saved. (laughs) That's all it is. You know, she had prayed a prayer, she had gone to church. She never understood who Christ was. And she doesn't have the witness of the Spirit. She doesn't seem to have the clarity that we would gain from 1 Corinthians 2.14. These things are evaluated spiritually. They're foolishness to her to believe what I believe. It's foolishness. But to those who believe, it is the power of God. And we know that. Jesus says in eight john eight twenty one through twenty seven I am going away, and you will seek me and will die in your sin where you where I go, you cannot come the, Jesus, the Jews said, Will he kill himself because he says, Where I go, you cannot come, and he said to them, You are from beneath, I am from above, you are of this world, I am not of this world, therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins if you do not believe that I am, and unfortunately in this per- verse, it says that I am he. If you look at your translation, that word he, do, do you see the italics? I don't think it ought to be there. I'll be honest. Now, every translation I've looked at has it in there. But I don't think it ought to be in there. And I know I'm not that high lofty. I only have an M div, but, but I don't think it should be in there. Because when you go to John 8, 58... And he says, unless you believe that I am. And then you look at John 8, 21 through 27. If you do not believe that I am, I don't think we take the he and leave it in. If you do not believe that I am, you will die in your sins. Who is the I am? Before Abraham was, I am. And therefore, do I believe that embracing the eternality of Christ as being the God of the Old Testament that we see time and time again is necessary, I say yes. It is necessary. So once again, if you've believed in error, repent of the error. If you've believed him lesser, repent of that. But if you willfully deny who he is, I say to you this, that Jesus of your imagination cannot save you. Newton goes on in his hymn, some call him a savior in word, but mix their own works with his plan and hope his help will afford when they have done all that they can. If doings prove rather too light, admitting their efforts may fail, they purpose to make up full weight by casting his name in the scale. Some call him the pearl of great price and say he's the fountain of joys, yet feed upon folly and vice and cleave to the world and its toys. Like Judas the Savior, they kiss and while they salute him betray. Oh, what will profession like this avail in his terrible day? The last stanza shows the one who truly knows Christ. If asked of what Jesus I think, though still my best thoughts are but poor, I'll say he's my meat and my drink, my life and my strength and my store, my husband, my trust and my friend, my savior from sin and death's gall, my hope from beginning to end, my portion, my Lord, and my all. Today, if you... Do not know Christ, the Christ that has been put before you from Scripture. I commend you today. Cast your all upon him. You will find him an anchor that will never be moved. You will find him a pillar that will never budge. You can grasp a hold of him, and he will not let you go. And he will take you to him where he is today. Let us pray. Lord, I pray that you might cause your words to be an encouragement to us, to be, Lord, a, a balm to our souls. Too often, Lord, we do feed upon folly and vice. But, oh, Lord, we confess Jesus is better, and Jesus is more, and Jesus is worth it. Lord, we pray that we might love you more and more. Take your word daily, we pray. Make it, Lord, both food and meat and drink and a balm to our souls, Lord. May it be that thing that draws us daily more and more into the love of God and that we would love you and keep your commandments, Lord. We pray that you might cause today, if there be one among us today or one Who may even listen to this later, that does not know you. My own mother, Lord, I pray. Oh, Lord, do not let her die in her sins. Lord, pray that you would send your spirit upon her in power and conviction. Lord, I pray that you would save her soul. Lord, I ask that you would do this not for something that we have earned, for we have earned nothing, but punishment, Lord. And death, yet Jesus paid it all. Lord, we do thank you. Thank you for paying the penalty for us. May we love you and exalt you with our lives. We pray in Christ's name, amen. We're going to close with hymn 291, hymn 291.